when you become a Christian, which I pray and hope that most of you have, <laughs> when you become a Christian, um, something really remarkable happens. And as that you, your eyes become open to this conflict, um, that's this cosmic conflict that you really didn't know or, cho- you know, or chose not to know, was going on all around you. Um, you know, when, when you first hear about it, and you're, maybe you're not a believer, it sounds kind of silly. It's this cosmic battle between good and evil in the universe, and you think, oh, that's just sort of fairy tale. It's sort of silly, you know? Um, and then when you come to Christ and your eyes are opened, you, you can't help but see it. You can't help but sense it. You can't help but feel it, that there is a cosmic struggle in the universe going on all around you, both in the physical and the immaterial realms. You know, every time I go and travel to particular cities, I I can sense a darkness, I can sense a heaviness in those particular cities. I just remember going to San Francisco and visiting San Francisco, and as as you're driving over the bridge and you're coming to the city, I I just could feel it. It's like it's a tangible, there's, there's some kind of a warfare of my soul in this place. You know, certain places are just heavy. They are heavy places. I remember going to, um, to uh, well, I'm totally spacing it, um, New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans, a similar thing. I mean, it's just, there's, there's certain places in these cities that are they're, they're dark. There's a reality to this. Um, and when you become a Christian, you start to become aware of that. Uh, you know, you ever wonder why every movie that really is a good blockbuster movie has some kind of a cosmic conflict in it, whether it's Lord of the Rings and there's, you know, there's, there's um, Sauron and there, there's, there's the good forces of evil, the good and the, the forces of evil and they're in conflict or whether it's, it's Narnia, whether it's Star Wars, whatever the movie, whatever the story, whatever the tale, there's always cosmic conflict. And, and the reason is because it, it, it's reminding us of what's true and what's most true in the world. But when you become a Christian, you actually immediately become conscripted into that war. In fact, you already were in the war. But when you get saved, you become conscripted into the other side of that, that war. Now, what kind of war... Are we talking about? Let me, let me explain it like this. Uh, many of you are familiar with the country of North Korea. Okay, it's a fascinating country, and I'm no expert on it. Um, but like all of us, you know, I've watched a few documentaries, so therefore, I'm an expert. Um, so North Korea, it, it, it's helpful in understanding what kind of war we're in, in this cosmic war. And so North Korea is, is this a closed country. And the way that the Kim family, the way that they, they hold on to their power, the way that they hold on to their control is by limiting um, the outside world from coming in and letting their people know that they actually could be having it a lot better. And they, and they, they create all of this kind of, um, oh, what is the word? Propaganda. They create this propaganda uh, and they limit all of the outside world from coming in, okay? It's this dictatorial regime that has had its, its kind of control over its people for so long and they, they abuse and use their people. They take their money and use it for things that aren't beneficial for the people. And the way that they keep that control is they close, the, they close themselves off from the outside world. Now, what if someone were to infiltrate that country? This is into the hypothetical now. I've set aside reality, and now I'm just, imagine this with me. What if someone was able to infiltrate that country uh, and, and actually dethrone the Kim family, to take them out of power? Uh, that would be really good news for the people uh, that were there, the people that are enslaved. But what if there was a gap between that overthrow of the power and the actual consummation of that person as the ruler, the new ruler of this free country? What if there was a gap? And what if the public didn't know it happened? 
What if the Kim family was literally, literally overtaken, conquered? There's a new ruler of this country, but no one fully really understood except for a few. And, and, and not only that, but what if the Kim family was still allowed to run throughout the country telling everyone and acting and pretending like they were still in charge? Wouldn't that be interesting? But of course, there would be a select few that were loyal to this new king who had already been inaugurated, but, but, but had not yet been fully consummated as the king of this country. So what would be the job of the, the, these few people that understand who the true king was? It, it wouldn't be to fight because there's no reason to fight. The power has already shifted. What would they be fighting? They'd be fighting the lie that the power hasn't shifted. Are you with me? They'd be fighting the lie that there isn't a new king. They, this wouldn't be a physical war, or a political war, or a war for morals, or a war um, for a nation. That war has already been waged. That war has already been solidified. The war would be against a untruth, a false reality. And of course, this is, this is obviously where we're living right now. Christ came into this world. He came into the regime of darkness who, who was formerly ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Come on. It is finished, right? He said, it is finished. Well, why would he say that? Isn't Satan still running around ruling everything? Well, well no. What is he doing? He's pretending. He's lying. He's creating a false narrative that things have not changed. And the world is ensnared and enslaved by that false reality. And he still holds power only because of a lie. And those of us that have been set free from that slavery, set free and woken up to that reality, we now know that there is a new king and he is on the throne. And even though he hasn't come to take his place on this earth, it is his world. And we serve him. This is called the kingdom of God. Do you see how this works? But there is still an enemy who, though he is rendered powerless, is still able to run his mouth. And he's still able to ensnare. And he still has those that are loyal to him. We see this pictured really well in, in the book of Narnia, uh, in, in the, um, Narnia in, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you're familiar with that. C.S. Lewis clearly was, obviously was a th brilliant theologian, and everything he pictured in these books was representative of some kind of a spiritual reality. And so, you know, the, the, the four kids, they come through the closet, and they come out the other side, and they step into this realm, this kingdom, and it's completely covered in snow. And it's covered in snow because it's under rule. It's under the rule of the white witch. And she thinks and has asserted herself as the queen of this, 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 uh, this world, right? But then as they begin to meet some of these other creatures, these other people, they start to realize that she's actually not the queen. She is actually under a greater power. And that greater power is Aslan, right? So as the story begins to unfold, Aslan comes back into the picture and then you see him defeating her at the stone table. It's this picture of the cross. He ultimately defeats her. And as the movie's going, you see it. It's really brilliant. And as the book really is going, the snow begins to melt. Why is the snow melting? Because things are shifting. Her power that, that was really not real ever in the first place begins to fade. And, and, and these people that are loyal to Aslan, they begin to come out and they begin to serve him. This is a picture of this ultimate thing that's happened. So, so as Christians, our job is to infiltrate this world. It's not to conquer. It's already been conquered. It's to bring the truth 
um, about what has really happened. Now, Jesus spoke about this. Um, we get this from all of his parables. He was trying to communicate this to his guys, right? He, he tried to communicate this in, in the parable of um, the uh, wicked tenants, he said there was a master who planted a vineyard, and then, and then he, he hired some people to manage it for him. He's, of course, speaking of Israel and the world, and, and he, these tenants started to think that it was theirs. They stopped sending the money back to the, to the master, so he sends a servant, and they kill the servant. He sends another servant, they kill the servant. Again, he sends another servant, they kill the servant. And eventually he says, well, I will send my own son. Surely they'll respect my own son. And what do they do? They kill the son. So the, the point of the parable, will not the master come and destroy these wicked, you know, these wicked vineyard owners, or uh, managers? The point is that this world has been subletted out. This world has been, for a time, partially ruled by the enemy, but it does not belong to him. And now that he's been overthrown, a new kingdom is advancing in this world. This is what we see in the Gospels. We see it also in the parable of the sower and the seed. Okay, the sower and the seed is this guy who's throwing the seed of the gospel, the powerful seed of the gospel, and it's falling all over the place, sometimes in certain kinds of soil, sometimes in other kinds of soil. And what's the point of that? The point is that whenever the seed lands, and the seed is the gospel, Jesus makes that clear, whenever the seed lands, oftentimes a bird will come and will literally pick it out. Well, that doesn't mean that, that's not an image of Satan coming and destroying people. That's an image of Satan coming and pulling truth out of the heart and the mind and replacing it with a non-truth, with a false truth. This is the kind of war that we're waging. It's a war that I would like to call the battle for belief. Okay, it's the battle for belief. It's a guerrilla warfare for the truth. It's a guerrilla warfare for the truth. That's why the gospel matters so much. Now, as you can imagine, this job that we have of heralding the truth, the gospel, that's what the gospel is. It's the proclamation that Jesus is the new administration. He is the new king. You can imagine this, this heralding of this truth is not free of issues. The issues are that well, many don't believe there is a war. Try convincing people that there's this cosmic battle. They, they think you're crazy. Okay? Many that do believe there is some kind of a spiritual war, they don't believe they're on the wrong side because <laughs> they think they're a good person or something. Many don't see that they are slaves, even though they are. And many who, are, who know the truth are intent on subverting the truth and pulling people astray. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we get a snapshot of what the world is true, the, 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 the true status of the world that we live in right now. And it says this. Paul says, you were, so past tense, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a bleak picture. Paul says this is humanity apart from Christ. This is our natural state apart from God coming in and pulling you onto his side. We are by nature children of wrath. So how does this tie into Acts chapter 13? So Acts chapter 13 is, is really the, the, the perfect picture of this reality as we see it played out. The gospel, the truth that Jesus is the new king, the new administration, is going out. But of course, as it's going out, what would you expect to see? You would expect to see the enemy attack it. You would expect to see the enemy like the bird in the parable Jesus gave come and try to steal the seed away. 
And that's exactly what's happening. We're seeing the gospel advance. We're seeing the kingdom break through and break into this world. But we're also seeing opposition, seeing the enemy come against what God is doing. We're seeing spiritual warfare. But we also get to see the power of the gospel transform lives. That's what this text is all about. And let me give you a little bit of context before we get into it. We're only going to look at 12 verses. But the context is this. This is a massive turning point in the book. Up until this point, we've mostly been focused on what's going on around Peter and the, and the 12 in Jerusalem. But now the book, if you, if, you, if you dropped it on the ground, it would fall into two pieces. The other piece would be Paul's journeys. That's where we're turning here. We're turning a corner from all of Peter and the, and the, the disciples into Paul's missionary journeys. And that's, that's kind of where we're headed at this point. Antioch, we looked at two weeks ago. Antioch has been planted. This was a beachhead. Okay, a beachhead of gospel ministry that was planted in Syria, and it was this amazingly diverse, uh, ethnically diverse, um, gospel-saturated aircraft carrier of a church we talked about a few weeks ago. Okay, so Antioch has been planted, uh, and that's what we're going to basically pick up right here. These guys are standing on the precipice of the unknown. They've seen the gospel make its way out of Jerusalem into Samaria uh, and all the way even up into Syria. And they're just wondering, can you imagine the excitement, the the newness of this thing? Where is the gospel going to go next? What could God do as the kingdom is breaking into this world? And, And so they're sitting in Antioch, this group of men, and they're thinking, what could be next? And the Holy Spirit lets him know. So pick it up here in verse 1. Let me give you my outline really quick so you know where I'm at. We're just going to look at three things in this text. Number one, gospel mission, verses 1 through 3. Number two, gospel opposition, verses 4 through 11. And gospel penetration in verse 12. So gospel mission, look at verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers... They were named Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. Isn't that interesting, by the way, if you were here last week? <laughs> God is, is infiltrating the Herod family with the gospel. We have one of Herod's closest relatives, actually a pastor, a prophet, a teacher, a leader in the church of Antioch. It's fantastic. And Saul, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So in summary, what we see here is we have God coming to the church at Antioch and saying it's time to continue this movement of the gospel. It's time to continue the infiltration of the truth of what Christ has done on the cross and in his resurrection into the entire world. So he says, set apart from me. Paul, who is still called Saul here, and Barnabas. These are the two guys that are going to go. And I just want you to notice a few things about this church. Okay, I want you to notice a few things about this church. We talked about Antioch a couple weeks ago, and I just want to talk a little bit more about this amazing church, this amazing beachhead, this amazing aircraft carrier of a church. First of all, and we mentioned this before, but I want to say it again because it's important. First of all, this was a diverse church. This was a diverse church. It was pictured in its leadership. Look at the leadership again. In verse 1 of 13, we have Barnabas, who was a Levite. We have Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means black. So he was probably from Africa. He was probably a black man. Lucius of Cyrene was from northern Africa. He probably would have looked a little more like a Middle Eastern person. Uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is an incredibly diverse group of people here. Okay, an incredibly diverse people. And we talked about this before, but the reality is, is in order for us to be effective as a church, we have to be diverse. 
okay? They have to be diverse. We have to, we need each other. We need every single person and every single person's giftings. I've, I've started thinking about church differently lately in regards to when I see people do things differently than I would. I'm starting to go, I'm just so thankful that they do things differently than I would. Instead of being frustrated about it, I think, well, you know, if, if everyone was like me, then we wouldn't get anywhere. I mean, we really do need the diversity. So these guys are a diverse group of leaders in the church in Antioch. It's part of what makes them so effective. The second thing is they were a team. There was a plurality of these guys. Notice it doesn't say the church at Antioch was Barnabas and everybody that followed him. It's not what it says. It's a team. It's a team of leadership. And it's partly where we get the idea of plurality of elders. A church is not designed or meant to be led by one person. A church is, be, is designed to be led by a team. And let me just tell you, if you really want to experience true fellowship, go on mission with a group of people. I'm not just talking about a missions trip, although that would be great. I'm talking about get on board with a mission with people that are your friends that you love and do that together. That's truly where exciting relationship comes. These guys, they, they led this church together. They saw it be grown in Antioch. They saw these people come to Christ together as friends, and it was amazing. They were also redeemed men. They were redeemed men. Think about this. Menean was from the house of Herod, as I pointed out. You think this guy was, was, was intrinsically aware of his own need for grace? The family that literally has been shaking their fist at God for 100, 100 years, and then now this man, Manian, is part of the advance of the gospel? You think Saul understood his need for grace? A state-sponsored persecutor of Christians, a social terrorist? He was literally the enemy number one of the church, and now he's leading the charge. These men understood their own need for the gospel, and for that reason, they understood the need of everyone out there's need for the gospel. Also, they were already engaged in the work locally. Now, I want you to see that. And you don't see it here in 13, but if you go back to chapter 11, um, you see that they were not waiting to share the gospel until they got on a missions trip. Okay, and that's how we think sometimes, right? We think, well, I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to tell people the gospel when I go out and when I go start serving. No, no. If you're not doing it now, you won't do it there or later. These guys were, were, were passionate about sharing the gospel in Antioch. They saw great fruit in Antioch, so much so that they needed to expedite it, that they needed to get it out and continue to preach it elsewhere. Okay, how do you know if you're called to missions? Are you a missionary where you are now? These guys were missionaries where they were now. And so the, the, the desire to go out and be missionaries other places was evident, was obvious. Also, they were fully attentive to the Lord's leading. If you notice in verse, uh, let's see, what is it? Verse two, while they were, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So as these guys feel the call, feel the, 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 the compulsion to go by the Holy Spirit, what are they doing? They're worshiping. They're worshiping. They're fully focused on the glory and the, the value of God. And as they are focused on the glory and the value of God, their immediate reaction is, we need to go share this with the world. It's a, it's a really natural impulse of human beings to do that. What, what do you do? What's the first thing you do when you have a really good experience at a restaurant? You go tell your friends. Why? Because you want them to share in that delight of that restaurant. When you, when you feel like you have the best doctor, you feel like you have the best whatever it is, you know, real estate, we, I do have the best real estate, thank you, Brian. Um, you know, you wanna tell everybody who that person is. Why? Because it makes you look good. 
Because I want everyone to see how good my whatever it is or how good my this is. And this is the reality. These guys are valuing Jesus so much. They're valuing the glory of God so much that they can't wait to go and share that with everybody. It's this driving force for them. They're also fasting, okay? They're, they're focused on the Lord. Um, they're, they're, they're tempering their appetites in order to be more in tune with what God is doing. And they're listening. Now, I want you to see this, too. The Holy Spirit is the one that sets them apart. The Holy Spirit does it. Now, the church ultimately comes, as you'll see, uh, it comes and in, in they, they set hands on them, they lay hands on them, they endorse them, and they say, we're sending you, as we will do soon, because we have missionaries from this church that are going to be going out soon, okay, and next week you'll get to meet some of them and hear about what they're going to do, which is exciting, so plug for next week. Um, but the, the church comes and sets hands on them, lays hands on them, but ultimately it's not the church that says they can go. Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit calls these guys out to go, and the church just simply says yes to that. Now imagine the excitement that these guys are feeling in this moment. They're going into uncharted territory. No one's ever brought the gospel to Cyprus. No one's ever brought the gospel to these cities that they're about to go to. And they're just standing excited, thinking about what God's going to do. I mean, I just remember the night before going on mission trip, the night before going to Uganda, just thinking, God, what are you going to do? And who am I going to meet? And how are you going to use me? I remember, you know, the week before planting this church, I mean, just the, the butterflies, the excitement, like, God, what are you going to do here? Is anyone even going to show up? I don't know, but I'm just like, Lord, this is so exciting to see what you're going to do. And you're just, you're just standing there, uh, like, just trying to imagine what it looks like. And what do you know? It never ends up being what you think. <laughs> it never ends up being, I mean, these guys probably had this idea that what God did at Antioch, which was a beautiful thing, he was going to go do it somewhere else. But he didn't. He did entirely new things. Every church plant, everything that he did was entirely new and different. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. It's a port city in Syria. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island, by the way. Uh, it's about 130 miles from the coast of Syrian Antioch. It was close enough that these guys, when they would have boarded their passage, if it was a clear day, they probably could have seen the island in the distance. Uh, it's kind of funny. It was actually referred to the Happy Island because of the climate like Grants Pass, you know, it's the climate, right? Um, this was a place that people would resort to. It was a place that had just this really incredible climate. It was a really comfortable place. Um, and it's where Barnabas was from. Barnabas was a Cypriot. That's where he was from. So they board passage to Cyprus, verse 5, and when they arrived at Salamis, that's the port to the east, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, as was their custom to go to the Jews first. And they had John to assist them. I just want to point out who this John is really quick. It's not John the Apostle. It's John Mark. If you ever read the Gospel of Mark, he wrote that. John Mark was a young man who uh, came from a, a wealthy family. His mother's name was Mary. And it's his house in which Peter comes knocking on the door. Um, as you guys were here last week, knocking on the door, trying to get in when he was let out. Um, and John Mark was sort of a young, maybe an intern, maybe an assistant of some sort to these guys. He was the cousin of Barnabas. Um, and he was close, a close relation to Peter. Many think the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's um, take on uh, Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings. And, and as we'll see, in fact, if you want to skip ahead and look at it, in verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Pergia, or Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this ended up being kind of a cause for some argument between Barnabas and Saul later. <laughs> Because apparently, John Mark had some different ideas about what missions was going to look like. And if you guys have been on a mission trip before, you know what that's like. 
oh, this is going to be so great. And you look at all the pictures that are filtered, and you know, everything looks awesome. And then you get there, and you eat something, and you're sick, and the airplane makes you nauseous, and you have jet lag, and you smell bad, and you don't know the language, and everyone has different customs, and you're just, this is completely hard. So John Mark is dealing, I think, with some of this. He gets to an entirely new place. He's extremely uncomfortable, and he bails out. And, uh, and later, that, that really seems to not sit well with the Apostle Paul. This is all side. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Bar-Jesus, by the way, just means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. And and Joshua, of of course, means salvation. So son of salvation. He was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, he has two names, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they go through all the way to the other end of, of, of Cyprus to this city called Paphos. And the reason that they go there, they get there, they get summoned by literally the ruler of the entire island. Okay, he was a proconsul. He was the selected one by the Senate. In Rome to rule the island of Papa or of Cyprus. He is for some reason interested in what Paul and Barnabas have to say. So he, he wants them to come and to tell him the word of God. But there's this man, Bar Jesus, or Elimus, who is a Jewish man who immediately takes issue with this and begins to try to stop the gospel from coming to this uh, this uh, Proconsul. So this is interesting, and it's exactly what you would expect to see. It's exactly what you expect to see based off what we talked about in the introduction. It's exactly what you'd expect to see. The kingdom of God is breaking into this island. Here is a man who is interested in the truth and who is right there to make sure that that truth does not take root. The enemy is there. Okay, the enemy is there. It's just, it's just so obvious. Wherever the kingdom is advancing, there is opposition. You need to understand that. Wherever there is a truth seeker, there is always someone seeking to remove the truth. It's the birds of the air and the seeds. Now, why is Bar Jesus, or Elimus, why is he so adamant on turning this this man from believing the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas are bringing? I would ask the same question about the world. Like, why is the world so upset that we believe in Christ. Like why, is it, why does it make the nations upset when they see Christianity in many ways growing? And the reason is because the world is ultimately serving the enemy. John 3.19, Jesus says, And this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Ephesians 6.12, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And here's an interesting one. Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Isn't that interesting? They literally suppress the truth. It's our human nature as fallen beings to suppress the truth of God. To suppress it means you must know that it's true in order to suppress it. It's a a subconscious thing. So this is what's happening. This man, uh, Bar-Jesus or Elimus, is literally in conflict against the gospel because ultimately it's Satan who's in conflict with the gospel. And this guy is basically just a tool in his hands. 
Now, wherever the true message is preached, listen, a counterfeit message will also be preached. The gospel doesn't come into a vacuum. It's not that when we preach the gospel, it's not, it's not as though it's the only message. You know that? It's not as though, you know, you're, you're coming to people that have no opinion about the world and worldview and no idea, and you just get to tell them, this is the right one, and they choose it or they don't. You are coming into a crowded space, a crowded space where everyone in the world is being uh, offered worldview, offered false religion, having it crammed down their throat constantly. You understand that? When you share the gospel, you are competing with other gospels. It's not as though there's only one gospel. There's only one true gospel, but it is in conflict with all these other gospels. And we live in a world full of gospels and full of gospel messaging. The, the, the person here that is coming in conflict with this message is a false prophet. That, that means that he's not just against the gospel, he's for his gospel. You see the difference? He's not just against the gospel, he has his own version of the gospel. Now, this is where we're going to get into some of the discussion questions here, and I want you guys to, 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 to focus in here uh, with me. Now, a few tenets of false gospels, I want you to see this. A few things about false, go false gospels that always seem to come up. First of all, counterfeit gospels always have just enough of a ring of familiarity of truth that they feel valid. False gospels always have just enough of a ring of familiarity or truth that they feel valid. Think about this moment. So this, this man who's interested in the gospel um, and he wants to hear it from two Jewish men is, is all of a sudden has another person in his ear and what is he? He's a Jewish man. And, and, and he's saying he's the son of Jesus. Now we don't know if that is in connection to Jesus himself or if that was just his name, but regardless, it's confusing. So who do you believe? Who do you believe, Sergius Paulus? Are you going to believe the, the gospel that these Jews are telling you, or are you going to believe the gospel that this other Jew is telling you? Which one is it? Well, they're both Jews. They both have this understanding of Yahweh and the, the, the Old Testament scriptures. And this is how the enemy works. It's not as though we're battling, you know, um, these false truths that, that are basically just obviously stupid and obviously wrong. We're battling false truths that are very palatable and have the similarity to the truth enough that people actually buy into them. Have you noticed that? I mean, there's things about cults that are right. You know, you have Mormons knocking on their door, and they say, hey, you know, we, are, we value family. You know, we are all about good, good morals and just having full and rich lives and community, and you're thinking, wow, that's good, that's good, that's good. And, and you flip on the, 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 the TV, and you listen to Oprah Winfrey, and she's talking about love and, and tolerance and all these good things, you know? And you, you, you look at Islam, and you see their, their, their um, devotion to sort of this monotheistic theistic idea, and they, they seem to have this high view to some degree of morals, even they treat their women like garbage. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's just, there's so many good things about these that you think, well, these must be true. There's some familiarity to these things. And so what the enemy does is he makes them all so similar that people can't discern the difference between the right one and the wrong one. They must all be true. And that's where you get universalism. All religions must have some truth to them. They almost ultimately lead the same direction. This man is ultimately not just trying to come against the gospel. He's trying to create a counter gospel. And he's just similar enough to the other one that it leaves this, this, this man really confused really confused. Also, counterfeit gospels almost always manifest or promise their own counterfeit power. They almost always manifest their own counterfeit power. You know, it, it, the enemy has been in the world forever manifesting his own version of the power. Let's look at Pharaoh in Exodus, you know. Um, he has power. 
Now, we live in sort of a demystified culture where people aren't really looking for, for, for God to sort of manifest his power as much as, as, as we live more in like a, a natural scientific world. But the desire for power is all the same. We just look for it in ourselves now instead of the enemy. So let me give you some things real quick. Counterfeit gospels always also manifest their own version of salvation. Their own version of salvation. So think about what the tenets of the true gospel are, okay? There is a problem. There is a deliverer. There is a heaven. And there is an imperative. Now, note those things, because that's going to be part of your discussion, okay? Um, So there is a problem or a villain, okay? And what is the problem or the villain in the true gospel? It's sin. It's the fact that we are at odds with God that we are at war with God. This is the problem. The, the world is cursed. It's in this fallen state. There's a problem. There's a solution. The solution is Christ. It's the cross. It's the fact that Jesus conquered sin and death and gave us his perfect life. Heaven, for us, is God coming and creating a new heavens and a new earth, place free from sin and death. This is, this is the heaven that we, we preach. And the imperative is belief. Believe in the gospel and be saved. That's the true gospel. Now, think about a different gospel. Think about, uh, for example, a Unitarian Universalist gospel. We have one of those churches, by the way. It's just a block down the road. Okay. And what does Unitarian Universalism say? It says that, that all religions are ultimately to the same thing. You just worship however you want, whatever you want. You're going to end up at the top of the hill. Now, what is the villain in their gospel? The villain is intolerance, or at least their definition of intolerance. The villain is ever telling anyone that their truth may not be as true as your truth. That's their villain. Their deliverer is tolerance. We just need to get along. Just be nice to each other. Tell each other that your truth is valid, equally valid. Your, whatever you believe is just as important as whatever I believe. We can all be friends. And I always wonder, I'd love to go one time and just to listen, what did they preach? You know, I mean, it's got to it's be a whole lot of nothing. Because if you, if you can't ever disagree on anything, if you can't ever say anything that might put down someone else's truth, what, what's left to say? There's not, not a lot there. So, but that's their gospel. Um, their heaven is a world without truth claims. It's, a, it's just a world where we all get along, where we all become so enlightened and so educated that we realize, you know, that we all really can stand for nothing and all be friends. And their imperative is to just not be rigid. Okay, so, so you see what I just did there? So I said, took universalism, and I said, what is their false gospel? They're offering a heaven, they're offering a solution to the problem, they're offering what they think the problem is, and they're offering what we need to do to get it. So and when I get you into your groups, in just a minute here, I want you guys to, to think about what are the false gospels that work in this world, and then dissect them. Ask the question, what's the heaven? What's the imperative? What's the, what's the enemy? Um, and, and go through these. And we'll have these questions up on the screen for you. I want you guys to do some thought work this morning um, in your circles. And the reason I want you to do that is because it's going to help you as evangelists. It's going to help you when you interact with people that are lost. It's going to help you see what is it that they're looking to as their savior, as their message of hope. What is their gospel that they're believing? Moving on, verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Boy, this is not a very tolerant, uh, <laughs> not a very tolerant thing to say here. Here's what, here's what Paul, he looks at him intently, which means he's giving him the mean mug, right? He's staring him down. And he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? Whew. That is harsh words. 
says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay, I just want you to see a few things about the way Paul responds to this. First of all, he responds to the wolf, not to the potential sheep. You see that? His harsh words are for the one who is clearly the puppet in the hands of the enemy, not for the one who's interested in the gospel. That's obvious. Secondly, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You notice that? Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't go into this battle without knowing that he's connected. And you know the difference. Okay, you know the difference. You know the difference when you're, you're operating in your own power and when you're operating in God's power. Now, thirdly, look at what he says. He calls the false prophet's message what it is. And it's helpful that we understand what the message of the false prophet is. If we are going to help the world, if we are going to be those that infiltrate the world with truth, we need to understand what it is that the world believes and how it is that the enemy works. So look at the four things that he says to this guy. He calls him the son of the devil, (laughs) which basically just means you are the byproduct of Satan's work. Whatever you're doing, it's because Satan did it. You're just doing exactly what he did. Okay? And everything that he says that follows is because these are things that Satan does. The second thing he says, he says, you're an enemy of righteousness. Now, that's kind of interesting, enemy of righteousness. Satan hates God. He hates his righteousness. He hates that God is everything that he is not. He hates the attributes of God. And so when you possess the attributes of God or you begin to, um, uh, pardon me, when you possess the fruit of the Spirit and you begin to manifest the personality of God, the s- Satan hates it. He hates it. He hates the righteousness of God. And he hates in this moment that the righteousness of God is, is about to be applied to uh, this proconsul. I wish he had a better name. It's like hard to remember. It's Sergius Paulus. Like, can we call him Bill or something? I don't know. He, he hates that the righteousness of God is, is, is going to and about to be applied to the account of Bill, okay? And, and Bill is literally going to become the righteousness of God. Satan hates that. So he wants to stop that. He wants to stop it in its tracks. The third thing Paul says is he's full of all deceit and villainy. Now remember our example at the beginning? What is Satan doing? He has no power. He has no authority. What he has is lies, And the same thing that Satan does, same thing he does in the garden, same thing he does today is to try to convince us that Christ is not the king, is the same thing that this Elimus is doing to Bill, okay? That's the exact same thing. The Bill is more distracting than it is helpful, isn't it? It's not really getting me where I want to go. Okay. Some days, it's just one of those days. Okay. The fourth thing he says, and this is a key one, he says, you are one who makes crooked the paths of the Lord crooked the past. But what does he mean by that? It means this. Jesus is in the business of saving. And he's made the path of salvation very simple and very clear. You know what it is? It's straight now. It's Christ, right? It's not getting yourself together and doing all the right things and making all the right moral decisions. It's Christ. He is the path of salvation. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. It's simple. It's clear. It's straight. The path to salvation, the path up the hill is Christ. What does the enemy do? He confuses that and makes it crooked. He makes it hard. He makes it complicated. He comes in, and he lies to you, and he tells you, no, it's not that simple. 
It's not just believing in Christ. It's not just believing that he's enough for you. It's not just believing that he can get you to heaven, that he can get you up the hill. You need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to repent of these things that you did so long. If you don't do that, God's never going to forgive. You need to change this little thing. If you don't do that, God's never going to love you. What is Satan doing in those moments? He's preaching a counterfeit gospel, and he's making crooked the straight path of the Lord. The straight path of the Lord is simple. It's Christ. It's him. It's belief in him. It's trust in him. And, and don't let the enemy come in and try to confuse. You know, whenever I sit with people and they say, this is just all the things that I'm feeling, and I just don't know what God's will is, and I just don't know what God thinks in this moment, and I, and I just feel so much guilt and so much shame, I said, you're making crooked the straight path. That happens to me every time. Straight path of the Lord. You're making crooked the straight path. There's an enemy right there is trying to distract you from hearing this. I'm serious. You're making crooked the straight path of the Lord. When you wake up in the morning and you feel like I should talk to Jesus and you think, you know what? No, because I still have sin that I need to deal with. And man, I just feel ashamed to talk to him and I'm distracted. You know what the enemy's doing in that moment? He's making crooked the straight path of the Lord. It's simple. Come to him. He knows you. He loves you. His sheep hear his voice. Don't make it crooked. Don't make it complicated. False religion is complicated, isn't it? You want to go be a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness? They got a book. And we can make Christianity complicated too. And watch out. Don't overcomplicate what's simple. Now God and his attributes, I mean, he's, he's pretty complicated. But the way of salvation is not. It's belief in Christ and who he is and his perfect work and his resurrection. Just believing him. It's simple. Whenever you start to complicate it, stop and say, why is the enemy making crooked the straight pass over? Amen? Amen. Okay. Amen. So what happens to this guy? He gets blinded, okay? We think that spiritual decisions don't have physical ramifications. We think that immediate decisions don't have eternal ramifications. They do. The same gospel that sets Bill free is the same gospel that causes this man to be blind, okay? And that's the reality. There's a, there's a connection here. I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit trail because I need to finish. There's a connection here, though, between Saul, who was blinded, and this man who was blinded. Okay, there's a connection. One of them led to salvation. The other one, it seemingly did not. Okay, and you can think about that on your own time. So lastly, gospel penetration. We've seen gospel mission. We've seen gospel, uh, what was the other one? I'm struggling this morning. Okay, gospel opposition, and now gospel penetration, verse 12. Then the proconsul, Bill, believed believed just one word i mean that's all that's all he did they didn't even they didn't even throw in here that he got baptized they didn't throw in here that he went through some kind of a an intake process he just believed he believed the message and when he saw what had occurred speaking of the blinding of this guy who had been lying to him he was astonished at the miracle anyone did, did i get that right what was he astonished at I just want to see if you guys are listening. He's astonishing at the gospel, the teaching of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So it was the miracle, it was the miracle that ultimately made him tune into the message, but it wasn't the miracle that saved him. What was it? It was the message. Okay? And we need to get that. You can do a survey and you can look. Why does God do miracles through people in the Bible? It's to validate the message. In Christ's case, it was to validate the man. He was the message. Okay, his miracles validated that he was who he said he was. Same reason Moses was given this uh, ability to do miracles in order to validate his message. The miracles don't save. The miracles validate the message. The gospel is what saves. And that's why we preach it. 
Every week. That's why we bring it up. That's why we need to be reminded of it because the power is in the message of what Christ has done. And it's not just the words, it's what they represent. That Jesus has conquered sin and death. That he has raised, that he has ascended, that he's at the right end of the Father. That he is the ruling, the highest ruling um, being in the universe. The message of that reality is what transforms people. That's what transforms people. You can't change anyone. Have fun trying. Can't even get my kids to pee into the toilet. Okay? But the gospel transforms people. But it doesn't transform people like a bomb. So this is the, we have a hard time with this in the West. We like things to happen like a bomb, like a microwave, like push 20 seconds and my hot pocket is done. That's not how the gospel transforms. Sometimes the gospel transforms like a seed. And that's why Jesus said it was like a seed. You put it in the ground. And what do you do? You foster it, you water it, you nurture it, you create an environment where it can grow. It takes time. But when it grows, have you seen the roots of a tree? They can shatter concrete. They can break foundations. They can absorb boulders. I mean, tree roots are intense. The gospel's like that. It's small at first. It doesn't seem like it's doing much. And every one of you, at one point in time, the gospel was planted in you, and it didn't have some kind of an explosive reaction. You know, something blew up in your life. But slowly, over time, this reality that you were in a cosmic battle and that you now serve the king began to grow in your mind and in your life and in your heart to the point where it began to overtake your entire life. And that's how the gospel works. And that's why Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power because it represents the resurrected Christ who is the power of God. Amen? So what's our job? We plant it, we water it, we nurture it, we pray for it. We are not at war with physical objects in this world. We are not at war with nations. We are at war with the untruth. We are at war for what the truth is. And the way that we wage our war is by proclaiming the truth to those that need to hear it to wake those up, okay? So I'm going to end there. We're going to break into groups. Here's your discussion.